Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening in today. I'm so excited to be bringing you this episode, uh, number 104, all about Rudolf Steiner and his ideas and be just speaking with my fantastic guest, Theo Grow. I did want to give you a quick note before this episode starts that I did have a hiccup uh, with the sound set up with the recording set up in this episode and actually the next episode as well, which is also going to feature this guest, Theo Grow. I did resolve the issue with the recording setup. So after episode 105, you will not uh, experience sound quality like today. It's not terrible. I really mulled over actually whether or not to go through with producing this episode because the sound quality wasn't perfect, but the content is just so good. And, and Theo and I had such a fun, fantastic conversation. I just had to share with all of you. He has a really interesting perspective about Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy. He, uh, he'll tell you all about it. He just grew up really from the perspective of having this anthroposophical background. And he can speak so passionately about his experience as a Waldorf student. We, in our conversation, were brought to tears. We laughed. It was just so much fun. I did a lot of editing on this episode to try to get, like I said, the sound quality to be something, you know, worth bringing to you. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you love the content. And as I mentioned, uh, after this episode, 104 and 105, once we move on to the next one, the sound quality will will be better. So thank you so much for putting up with me. And I'm so glad that you tuned in today. I am so pumped for this conversation that we're going to have today. I mean, you were driving over here and I could just feel myself getting so pumped up. That's the only way to describe it. So let me introduce to you my guest sitting here, Theodore Grow. Theo has worked in schools, nonprofits, and electoral politics. He helped found Wheelhouse Web Solutions, where he offers website and social media analytics, marketing strategy, and custom design social media and ad campaigns. He's just a fantastic person. We go way back. He actually went through what we call the 14-year extravaganza. He went to two years of kindergarten at a Waldorf school and then grades one through 12. He actually went back and worked in school admissions at a high mowing school, his high school. And like I said, is it palpable? I'm just so excited to be sitting here with you today. We just have you know, so much history between the two of us. Uh, His sister was in my class when I went to uh, Waldorf school, grades one through eight. And then my sister was in your class, grades one through eight. (laughs) So you're like a little brother to me. Hi, Thea. Hi, Ashley. I called you this afternoon because I wanted to speak to somebody about Rudolf Steiner and about his ideas. And you and I had been talking, and I know you're really excited about this project that I'm doing, Waldorfy and the podcast. And I was just telling you how it's been amazing and fun producing this. But so far, we've only had the perspective of the generation um, above us, our parents um, in their uh age group, shall we say it? (laughs) And I wanted to bring to the table a perspective that's a little bit 
younger, you know, uh, you're 28, I'm 31. And I just wanted to have this conversation. Like I said, today's episode is going to be about Rudolf Steiner, but we're also going to get into his ideas and anthroposophy. And I wanted this younger perspective about his, uh, ideas. So yeah. Who is Rudolf Steiner? So he was an Austrian philosopher. I use the term philosopher loosely. Uh, I really like to think about him as like a polymath. So if you think of somebody who just has really interesting ideas across a wide spectrum of areas, he grew up in a small part of the Austro-Hungarian empire and he went to university. He studied the physical sciences. Um, He was uh, uh, very interested and involved with the work of Goethe and I think lots of people when they hear um, Goethe they think of like literature and you know the romantic poets Um, but Goethe actually had a lot of interesting things to say about science about how we observe the world he has a a totally interesting and revolutionary color theory so if you want to get an artist going ask them about Goethe's color color theory and how that um, relates to some of the other theories out there so he was really interested in the life and work of Goethe yeah and then out of his own personal experiences he really was interested in this question which is a huge topic in philosophy if you go and study philosophy this question of the physical and the non-physical what is you know what they talk about as body and mind in philosophy but he wrote one of the first books that he um, wrote was a book called philosophy of freedom and it's a great entry point if you've studied classical philosophy. So if you have somebody out in the world, if you're someone listening that is really interested in philosophy and wants, wants to figure out, okay, who was this man in the context of his time? Really interesting book to read. I'm still working my way through it, to be honest. Um, but I, I love it having taken some philosophy in college. You actually start to understand like what are his philosophical roots and kind of where, where they went after that. Um, so yeah, so he was talking about from that coming into this idea that there is the material world that we have, um, and there's also all these this other thing that other things that go on in the world that we know to be true, that we know to exist, that are non-physical, and how do we deal with that um, in a scientific way? Because he was a classically trained scientist, and so he was really interested interested in this whole idea which you have with the hard sciences of, you know, you have laws of like, you know, can we measure it? Can we burn it? Can we do X, Y, and Z? Um, but I think the the biggest thing is, can we reproduce it? Can you, you know, can you and Oslo have the same, conduct the same experiment and get the same results in um, Boston, um, reproducing my experiment and make the same observations? So if you think about the history of like spirituality and, and religion, I think prior to the 1920s and, and the late 1800s, it was very much very mystical of, you know, you can have spiritual experiences or there are different spiritual schools that kept their secrets to themselves. Religion would say that there is a mature, there is a non-physical world but you can't know anything about it. That's a mystery. That's a mystery of faith. You have faith. We will tell you all about it. And Steiner said, wait a second. We know there are physical things. We know that there are spiritual things. That's something we can pretty much observe in the world. And we should be able to 
approach it with this scientific mindset. If this is a thing that actually exists, you in New York should be able to have the same experience and to be able to observe the same phenomena as I can in Auckland or anywhere else around the world. Um, and I, in my time, should be able to have a, a, an experience of that um, um, somewhere else. And so from that, this idea of um, quote-unquote spiritual science turned his attention to lots of different um, areas of the world. Um, people came because he was obviously uh, had really interesting this, things to say about different... Um, interesting viewpoints, I guess. Yeah. Interesting viewpoints. A lot of people came to him with questions of, you know, farmers came to him with questions at just at this turning point where we were going into industrialized farming and getting into the cycle that we are in now, which is, you know, heavy duty chemicals, heavy duty um, artificial fertilizers. And farmers were, had the feeling that, that, that this isn't healthy even then. Um, and what can we do about that? And so he offered, um, a series of lectures to them on a different way of looking at the farm, um, a different way of, of farming, sort of a spiritually informed farming. Um, he had folks who were involved with religion saying, how do you know, what would that mean to apply spiritual science to uh, what human beings' religious needs are? How he had somebody ask him in 19... Well, it must have been prior to 1919, the first Waldorf school was founded with advice from Rudolf Steiner, where teachers and Emil Malt, who actually ran a, a factory, was looking for an education for his workers um, and wanted Rudolf Steiner, he's a friend of Rudolf Steiner, to help him build a school and asked him, so what, what would an education look like with that perspective? Um, and so lots of different people got him to talk about all sorts of really interesting things out of his, his spiritual experiences, spiritual observations. Uh, so there's another aspect about Steiner that I want to touch on too, mm -hmm. which is Steiner was what you would call at the time classically educated. So how did he go about developing this much more progressive, holistic approach to education? Steiner had his traditional education that he ended up going to a technical university and having his, his strong scientific training. And at the same time, since childhood, he had had these inner experiences, this, these, these experiences that were you related to the spiritual world, this, this feeling that there's something beyond the physical. Um, and he took an interest. There was a lot of other, uh, there was a surge. If you look in the late 1800s and early 1900s of people talking about that and had taking an interest in that and trying to like bring that into public conversation. If you look at the history of the world, there's always been people talking about the spiritual, um, whether it's the religious or all the various different groups, but a lot of that was very, um, to inward, uh, they, it wasn't publicly discussed. And so you, you get this really interesting phenomena in the 18, late 1800s where people start talking about it and people start publishing books and some of them are super out there. Um, but it's interesting to, to see all of a sudden this becomes a public discussion. And, and so I think Steiner as a young person could see there are other people who are having experiences, um, like mine. And I think he, having a very strongly classically trained scientific mind, really wanted to bring a connection between this emerging um, spiritual conversation and these 
the values that we have in science, the values that we have in, in Western education, bring those together and really apply it in a rigorous and disciplined manner. Um, so it's, you know, not like, what's a good example of that? That, that, that you do have this, this kind of re- reproducibility that we were talking about earlier, that, that the spiritual isn't, you know, I have an experience and you have an experience and then you can have no relationship to, to the experience that I had and I can have no relationship to, to what you had. You know, he's saying, look, if we're going to be really serious about this, if we believe that there is a physical world, if we believe that there's a physical world and a spiritual world and that they influence each other, then we actually have to be really careful what we say about it and really careful about how we observe it and really disciplined in our thinking about it. And I think for me, that's what makes me an admirer of his work because he has this kind of rigor, this, this, this scientific rigor to it, this discipline of how do we not just like, Oh, great. There's a, there's a spiritual world. Let's believe absolutely everything. Or, you know, every, every experience is as valid as anything else, but no, how do we look at these in a, in a systematic way? And how do we do that um, in a way that's useful for humanity, for the planet? And I think that's, what's interesting about him versus a lot of other spiritual theorists or, or other people involved in that, where you can see he takes ideas out of his spiritual science and then applies them practically in the world. And you can see the effects of those ideas. So for me, I, I had my uh, teacher in Walder school tell me his, his experience of encountering Walder education in Rudolf Steiner's work. Because you can, if you walk off the street and pick up a book of his and just like start it in the middle, often you're just like, what on earth is he talking about? <laughs> and I think that's... That's, that's my relationship totally, to it so far. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's a totally valid um, response because a lot of it's super heady. A lot of it is... Well, also being translated from German too. I yes. think that some of the translations are just using terminology mm-hmm. that make it his work really challenging to mm-hmm. understand. And then uh, he had a great sense of humor, um, and <laughs> he would sort of um, smile and say about some of the books that he wrote that the experience of striving to understand what he had wrote is a spiritual exercise in itself. It's an exercise in self-development. So it's always a little, I'm always a little chagrined. Um, when I don't get anything, I'm thinking of him laughing at me. Yeah. I'm um, going, yeah, you, you know, you obviously haven't done the work yet. <laughs> um, but, so you'd mentioned your, you mean your class teacher, mm-hmm. uh, grades one through, or no, you didn't have this teacher. No, grades I had one through him eight. grades four through eight. So you'd used him, you wanted to use him as an example, his oh, yeah. kind of finding anthroposophy, I guess, in yeah, Rudolf Steiner. I'd, Prior to Waldorf education, he had done some work in dynamic farming, which is the um, sort of the anthroposophically informed approach to farming. And he had told me, you know, you pick up a book of Rudolf Steiner and you might read something about, you know, the, the history of consciousness or, you know, planetary movement or like things that seem really either out there or obscure. And he said, you know, I, I couldn't relate to that. But then I picked up a book about what Steiner had to say about farms and what Steiner had to say about bees. And I could go out on the farm and I could see that what his observations of what were, what was going on are true. And uh, for me, that was a freeing moment. And I think for him as well, where you don't necessarily have to be able to understand every 
bit of it and you're not being asked to accept it either in the way that you would like a religious dogma where uh, what's what I, I respect about Steiner I, I consider myself a free and independent thinker and what I respect about Steiner is he's always saying this is what I have come to out of my observations please go check it here's it you know you can you can train yourself so you can observe in the same way that I did uh, please go check it out go out into the world um, and what that's a process that I've done with some of these ideas that I find really interesting you find an idea that you think is interesting take it out in the world see if it helps you observe something else see if it is interesting to you see if it leads you to further observations or further conversations and then you know if you do that for th three months or six months and then it doesn't work for you get rid of it if, if it does that can be really interesting you can build on that um, so for me that's been an approach that really works with with some of his ideas and then having been um, a Waller student having um, grown up on a biodynamic farm I've seen a lot of his work at work a lot of his thinking at work in the world and so for me, I've seen a lot of lived anthroposophy. So I, for me, it's easier, I think, to relate to it. So from what I'm hearing, I think this is an interesting observation, an interesting takeaway for those interested in anthroposophy or Rudolf Steiner's work is that maybe it's a good idea if you're interested to approach it not from like its core or its greatest depth, but maybe it's more accessible or approachable to start learning about something like Waldorf education or biodynamic farming, where you can take his observations about more simple things in the world that you could observe for yourself. Would you agree that, that that's a, that that's a good way for someone to begin to learn about Rudolf Steiner and his work? Absolutely. And I think everybody has their area of interest. I'm really interested in farming. I'm interested in education. I'm interested in religion. And Often I find that I'm not either particularly able or necessarily as interested in reading some of the more foundational texts within the anthroposophy, but some of the more specific ones um, where people have read them, digested them, added things to them. You know, I just picked up a book recently that was sitting in your living room about um, Waldorf education. And it's really interesting because it does include a lot of what Steiner had to say and then observations of how it has been in the world. Um, and there's so much out there that's really interesting. And I do think it eventually will lead you to some of these core foundational ideas that are, that are at the, the heart of anthroposophy as well. Um, some of his observations about human beings and, um, which I think are really interesting, but even those you can go out and, and, see them working in the world. You can see them working in yourself. And I think it's, it's an interesting, I think we have intellectual ADD in the sense of like, we want, especially in this day and age, we want instant gratification, even in our ideas. And we don't, we don't aren't willing to live in relationship with an idea for a while. And I think that's something that is super important. If you're dealing with I think that's why it's so easy to accept the mindset that anything you can't like burn or, or like measure with a tape measure ever like bash your head into doesn't exist, even though we can frequently see it working in the world. I think it's very easy to see that the world is more than that, but it's hard to measure that. And so to, to be able to get a hold of, of some of those spiritual things, you actually do need to live in relationship with it for a little bit and say, Hey, does this, does this groove with, with my life, with, 
you know, what I observe in the world. And it's interesting kind of the, the doors that that opens. Yeah. I think at this point in the conversation, it's interesting to introduce to the audience what a different relationship we have with anthroposophy and Waldorf education. If you're listening to this and you're at all familiar with my content, you know that I have zero background or association with anthroposophy. Well, I guess outside from going to a Waldorf school. I've pointed out the fact before that most children within a Waldorf school definitely share the same experience with anthroposophy that I had, which is obviously just going to a Waldorf school. Anthroposophy isn't taught within the school. What I want to speak to now is how you, Theo, had almost the opposite experience with anthroposophy growing up than I had, where my parents knew (laughs) really nothing. Your parents were like the anthroposophists. You mentioned seeing a lot of what was it? Lived anthroposophy. I don't even know what that really means. So why don't you tell us about your background with anthroposophy, Waldorf education, and your experience growing up around anthroposophy. Tell us about your mom, your dad, and I think you can even go further back than that even. Uh, my mom grew up on um, in the suburbs of Chicago, no relationship to anthroposophy, um, as she, she says it herself, uh, but I think was really interested in, in spirituality and especially growing up in the 1960s and 50s and 60s, was really looking for something other than what the mainstream culture had to offer and wasn't finding that in her home traditions. You know, she grew up um, in the Jewish tradition, but with fairly agnostic or non-practicing parents. Um, And, you know, as she said, in conversations with that rabbi and with other people that she knew, nobody had any, nobody had any answers to anything. Nobody had any, you know, this was, this is what the book says. And then you should be, should be happy with that. Um, and that, that was, I think for her was a really frustrating experience. Um, and then she actually through her interest just in exploring this idea of religion and spirituality more, um, found anthroposophy in a bookshop, um, found, um, uh, someone said, here, you should read this guy. He's really interesting. I found that, uh, explored it further, uh, ended up getting her degree in international, agricultural development um, and with a minor in uh, comparative religion. Uh, so of course ended up um, as a binary farmer, right? So she uh, ended up taking that interest in that the, the practical of plants and, and fruit trees uh, and an interest in what sort of a religious or a spiritual perspective would have to say about that. And that matches and marries really nicely in anthroposophy and biodynamics. So she went and did her biodynamic training at a place called Emerson College in the uh, United Kingdom um, and met a lot of folks who were involved in anthroposophy, uh, came back here and was uh, doing some organic and biodynamic orchard orcharding, which is really tough to do in New England uh, because there's so many pests. Um, so you really have to know what you're talking about. Uh, but she bought a farm and was really interested in that, um, but wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And 15 days later, my father showed up from Germany uh, to give uh, lectures about biodynamic farming. And so, you know, she bought a farm and 15 days later, she met a, a farmer. Uh, so it's funny. Like the farmer. the farmer. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
my dad and his family history is a, is a little more anthroposophical than hers. He was a biodynamic farmer in North Germany for most of his life, starting at age 18. He's got a really interesting, like, biography, lived through World War II. Um, you know, he was 12 in 1945. Um, there's all sorts of interesting things there. But his parents were already interested in anthroposophy and in at least one side of the family, their parents had actually known Rudolf Steiner and were, were part of this kind of founding generation of some of these philosophical institutions. His father was a minister um, in the Christian Community Church, which is sort of an offshoot of Protestantism, but has um, they, it was a group of ministers who went to Rudolf Steiner and said, look, religion of the Christian religion is really falling apart would you have any advice for us? And sort of the, this refounded church came out of that. Um, Steiner was always very willing to give advice to people and says, I, you know, I don't want to take this on. I'm happy to talk to you about how you could take this on. Um, so it's always interesting because he, he has things to say about religion and farming and schools and, you know, taking care of handicapped people and all sorts of different um, areas because people asked him out of his experience. Um, so... My, my grandmother's father was also one of these founding um, ministers. Not He didn't actually go into the Christian community church, but was one of these guys who was really interested in what Steiner had to say about spirituality and how that um, related to religion. Actually, he stayed a Lutheran minister his entire life. and. Uh, so that's your, your background in anthroposity. It's oh. it, your pedigree, exactly. It's pretty rich. So that... Just to present that to the audience, that we just have such a different background in this and that you are so unique in your perspective. I feel very lucky I talk about uh, getting anthroposophy through osmosis because, I, you know, I grew up on this wonderful farm and we had guests staying over and for, din for, uh, for dinner all the time who showed up with their crazy accents from all over the globe who were there to talk to my mom and dad and talk about anthroposophy and all these super intense, heady, spiritual conversations that were happening were just happening around me, and that was super normal. And so when I, later in life, especially in my 20s, took a real genuine interest in anthroposophy, I felt like it was all review, like these were concepts that I had heard before. And for me, it was super accessible. So. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting thing for you to speak to. I think that there's a criticism of Waldorf education that kids are somehow being like indoctrinated <laughs> into this thing. And here you are with like the most anthroposophical parents or family or background. And even still you weren't being like preached to, or, yeah. you know, said, this is what you're going to believe. You were just kind of hearing all of this as background noise as a mm -hmm. kid and then came to it as an adult. So one of the things that I think it's so important for folks to know is that at, at the very foundational core of anthroposophy from Rudolf Steiner is this idea of freedom that you leave people totally free. If you have a com uh, have a concept that is interesting, then they can entertain that. But that they should you should at all points leave people free in their ideas and in their their spiritual life. What I absolutely adore about Waldorf education is the goal is to make people free. Steiner talks about the goal of the education is that the teachers receive the children in love and then let them go in freedom, um, and so that your goal as a teacher is to 
do everything possible to remove obstacles um, from the path of these individuals from doing what they need to do in the world. Uh, so uh, my class teacher, uh, fourth through eighth grade, David Barham, uh, was telling me years later about a, a parent-teacher conference that he had with my dad. And, <laughs> um, my dad, being from Germany, still had a fairly thick accent, and he was talking to David Barham about my maternal grandfather, who was, you know, business guy, had nothing to do with anthroposophy, wasn't sure what on earth this was. was. You know, pretty supportive of our education, but still really didn't know what this was all about. And he, he said to David, he says, yeah, Theodore was grandfather would like Theodore to go to Harvard or to Yale or something like this. And David said to him, well, Trager, what would you, what would you like for Theodore? Um, and he says, what I would like for Theodore is that he can become Theodore. And that's such an incredible gift to a child. You think of like, I think there's this, this amazing tendency that we've known about for centuries and centuries because humans have always done that to want to think of you know, your kids as your possessions. They're your kids. Like, you know, they're going to be a doctor. I want what's best for them. They're going to be a lawyer. They're going to be this. They're going to be that. And this really beautiful recognition out of anthroposophy and world of education that these are free human beings. And that And that our job as parents and our job as educators is to provide them with those tools so that they can fulfill whatever destiny they have, not what we want for them, not what any school decides. You know, we're not a widget factory. We're not turning out a product. We are enabling human beings to be free and fulfill out of that freedom whatever they choose to be and whatever they need to be for the world. And that's, I think... I always get emotional telling that story because for me and, and, and talking to lots of people of our generation, so many of us have struggled with that with our parents or with our grandparents of, you know, struggling as you, you grow into an adult being pressured or pushed into college or um, pressured and pushed into a particular career direction or all while you're trying to figure out who you are and what you need to be. And to have an educational system and to have parents as well that from a starting point say your job is to become who you need to be. That's gold. Yeah. That's, that's a special amazing. sauce, isn't it? It is a special sauce. That pretty much sums up why I feel it's so important for me to pursue this this project, Waldorfy and Waldorfy to the, the podcast, because that what you just so passionately articulated is exactly what I experienced. And I want other kids to have access to that. And I want parents to have all the tools they need to examine all the qualities about Waldorf education, anthroposophy, information about Rudolf Steiner, that allows them to make the free decision to send their child to a Waldorf school or uh, pursue Waldorf homeschooling if that's a better fit for the family, or perhaps even just to use some of these ideas or tools in the home. 
So that wraps up episode 104. Thank you so much, Theo, for joining me. Super special treat for all of you. As I mentioned in the intro to this episode, I'm going to be continuing this conversation with Theo Grow in the next episode. That'll be 105. The surprise treat is that episode 105 is going to be released next week. So usually Walder Fee episodes will be coming out bi-weekly, but next week you can look forward to an extra one in the middle, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I have been receiving so much great feedback since Waldorfie's launch. I just can't thank all of you listening enough. I would so, so appreciate it if you shared Waldorfie with friends and family, share it with your Waldorf community, teachers, share with parents and parents. These episodes make a great resource for friends and family who are curious about this Waldorf thing you're interested in. I would also love if you'd rate and leave a review of Waldorfie wherever you're getting your podcasts. As always, I would love to hear your feedback on this episode. You can always send me a message at info.waldorfie at gmail.com or leave a comment on the show notes page for this episode. You can find lots more information at waldorfie.com. That's W-A-L-D-O-R-F-Y.com. And that's also where you'll find the show notes page for this episode and a new blog post I wrote last week, Affordability and Waldorf Education. I hope you'll connect with me on social media at B I'm active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Be well.